Good morning, everyone. Hope I'm not too loud. Um, if we could turn to our Bibles this morning <coughs> to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's uh, page 1131 in our church Bibles. So page 1131. And our text this morning in chapter 1 is from verses 4 to 9. Uh, just six verses, but it's so rich and full of encouragement. And I'd like for us to have our Bibles open, and like the noble Bereans who were commended for their um, double-checking, I'd like to see heads bopping up and down, okay, to see if these things were so. And I would like to show you uh, this morning in this passage in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, <clears throat> three things. There's three things I want to show us in this passage, and that's number one, grace. Number two, grace. Number three, grace, right? Past grace, present grace, and future grace. And so if you take nothing, uh, nothing else from this sermon, my manuscript says the word counts as about 4,000 words. Take that word home with you, grace. And so let me just read the passage, starting from verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just want to take a short survey on this immense gift that God gives us lavishly in Christ. We can't possibly cover them all in the time that we have, but it's been such a blessing to me uh, recalling these truths. And as I prepare this sermon, and hopefully to you as well, as you attentively listen uh, about the unmerited favor of God. And speaking of which, let's ask our Father now for His grace. Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank You, Lord, that uh, Your Word is available to us, it is true, it is you speaking, Lord, and help us now to take what you have to say to us this morning about your uh, amazing, amazing grace. And so help me now as I preach, and help us, Lord, to listen in your son's name, amen. And just to give you a bit of background, um, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church the, which he planted in Corinth. You can read about that in, in Acts uh, 18. And if you know anything about first century Corinth, and the Corinthians at that time, it makes sense that this letter is one of the longer uh, letters, second only to Romans, but not for the best of reasons, right? It's long, but not for the best of reasons, and not only in its length, but uh, there were multiple letters, I think at least four letters. There was a lot of back and forthing with the Apostle Paul in that church, and two of which are included now in the inspired canon which we have today. We have one and two Corinthians. Um, the Corinthians' reputation was synonymous with immorality. <clears throat> so it's quite apt that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wraps the whole letter uh, to this mixed bag of a church where um, that he gives, you know, he gives thanksgiving and acknowledgement of God's grace at the beginning of the letter and at the end as well. So he wraps that in grace, given that the middle content is, is fairly messy. And many churches to this day can relate and can benefit much from this letter. 
the Corinthian believers were our fellow saints. That's an amazing thing, um, that, uh, the truth there. And so let's look at verse 4, my first point there. Grace that was given you, okay? Past grace. Look at verse 4. It's the grace that they received in the past. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. It's a typical thing that Paul says in his letters. He wrote 13 of them, right, in the New Testament, 13 letters. And in nine of those 13, he explicitly gives thanks to God for the recipients of the letter. He is thankful for the believers in Corinth, which is a remarkable uh, thing given that the fact that the church there was riddled with spiritual issues. But why does he give thanks to God? He gives uh, thanks to God because of the grace of God that was given to them. They received something previously in the past, this grace, this unearned merit, this undeserved favor, which is their salvation. The first instance when their eyes were opened to see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, Savior to sinners. They heard and received the gospel and by faith were saved. Um, were the Jews rejected the message? The Gentiles, the non-Jews believed and were baptized. And, and in this salvation package, which is made up of so much more than simply being rescued from the fiery pits of hell, the grace that underpins that is also so, so much more. I'm amazed to think about not just the recipients of this letter, the Corinthians, but also the one who writes them. Uh, Apostle Paul also encountered this grace, if you know, the grace that transforms and the grace that changes. Think about Paul, the persecutor Saul. He met the Lord Jesus and his grace changed him. Nothing he did to earn or deserve it, but he was granted it. Interestingly, the way he hunted down Christians in the past was through the letters um, you know, circulated that belonged to the way. Now, and that's in Acts 9, now he's the one passing the very letters he used to collect as evidence to convict Christians. God's amazing, transforming grace. For the Corinthians, they were given the grace of God and it was evident in their speech and knowledge, look at verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. What does this mean? That, does this mean that upon conversion, that they suddenly became super knowledgeable about everything and that now they could speak with super eloquence? Not quite necessarily, um, but now in Christ, they now possess a knowledge and <clears throat> that was previously hidden to them before, and so now able to speak of it to others. That is the impact of the grace of God. They have been made rich in speech and knowledge, nothing they've earned. They now have what I call a shareable testimony, able to understand the things of God as Paul taught them and now can speak about it. In other words, they've got it. They spoke as ones who got it. It was evident in what they know and what they say, they've got it. And I'm not talking about just Christian lingo, but something that points to the changed reality in what they know um, that they personally experienced with God and the Lord Jesus. 
I love hearing testimonies and of others. And in this past week at camp, we've heard several of them. Those camp officers, they've got it. It was evident. They've got it and they were able to somewhat articulate a message that others can hear and respond to. They were enriched in what they know. Yes, sure, some are particularly um, more gifted in other areas, and Paul will address those different kinds of giftings, even in speaking and teaching um, and understanding. But as for evidence in speech and knowledge, it was clear that they received the grace of God. I love that account in the Gospel of John, you know, that John chapter 9, about the Lord healing the blind man. Um, there, there are three blind men. There's loads of blind men. But this one was born blind. I think the other two uh, lost it over time, but not that it mattered. He was blind. I talked about this blind man at camp in the context of just recompense, right? Was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And Jesus tells him, no. It is so that the works of the God might be displayed in him. But as you read on in that account, okay, you read on that John 9, <clears throat> it's almost comical how the Pharisees, with their inquiry about how this man was healed, who was responsible? They were bent on getting to the bottom of this healing. Someone broke the Sabbath. How dare they? They interrogate the ex-blind man. They were not very happy with this answer goes to his parents, are you sure this is your son? Of course, you ask any parent, yeah, I know, that's, that's my son. We don't know how we could see now again, but yeah, that is our son. But he's old enough, you go ask him. He's of age. So they go back to the, blind man, the ex-blind man, and he says, you obviously have been healed. Give glory to God. Never mind that man you met, right? He's a sinner. And the ex-blind man's response were so simple and yet very profound. In John 9, verse 25, he said, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's, it's a revelation. And a bit later on, Jesus reveals himself to that man, and that man believed in him. He now has a testimony possessing a rich knowledge of the Savior that he can now speak to others about. The Corinthian believers and we today have been furnished with this knowledge, something that we can confess that he is Lord. In Romans, Paul, Paul writes to the church in Rome there, he says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Where speech was an important skill in ancient Greek society, God says you are abundantly blessed in all speech and knowledge because of what they have. They have divine wisdom, far, far better than any human philosophy or thinking. There is solid evidence that they have received this grace of God and they believed his teaching. Look at verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul was confident that they indeed have trusted in the Lord Jesus. The contrast is probably quite telling too, given that the culture in Corinth was so immoral that it was even seen as worse by pagan standards, kind of like Sodom, you know, and sodomy. 
um, the act is so akin to the name of the city. Um, the city's reputation in relation to immorality and drunken debauchery is synonymous with being a Corinthian. It wasn't the best of reputation to be a Corinthian. Paul gives thanks for the transforming power of God's grace. They had plenty of spiritual errors, as we, I'm sure the, the letter will uh, tell us. And if we ever start this series in Corinthians, it'll be quite a bumpy ride. But foundationally, foundationally, they were saved. They were positionally justified before God, pardoned and forgiven. And this is the grace freely given to them and to us. Praise God for His salvation. I'll read the verse in Ephesians, that another letter that Paul wrote to in that church. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know and love and treasure this verse. But grace doesn't just stop at that one-time event of having been saved rescued from the punishment of sin, justified and forgiven. But sometimes we treat grace as if grace seems to run out the moment we're saved, at least in the way we sometimes live our lives. That same grace extends from that time onwards, which leads me to my second point, grace in the present, the grace that sustains us. From the first day of our conversion and from their conversion and ours, We've always needed grace, and grace that keeps us and grows us in Christ. Because of the reality of having received this grace, the Corinthians are not lacking in any gift. Look at verse 7. They have enough grace. This any gift means that God has fully equipped the Corinthian believers with everything they need to lead the lives He is calling them to. Some think uh, this alludes to the spiritual gifts, which Paul later on will talk about in chapter 12. But I think it relates back to this grace of God, gift that they've received. They've had many problems and issues as churches do today, but lacking in any gift is not one of them. What God provides His church is sufficient and exactly what we need. We are not lacking, though we might feel that sometimes. This is the truth. If you're in Christ today, you are not lacking. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. All our needs are supplied in Christ. Second Peter, uh, his letter that affirms this. Let me read from verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We are not lacking. This is grace that continues on from the point of conversion. It's the grace provided as we wait for the revealing of our Lord. We are not left to our own devices as we patiently anticipate, like we learned last week, the coming of our King. Even the fact that we can anticipate His return today is grace. As we wait in this world, we are to live lives that are being made holy and this will be made evident as we rely on His grace. We tend, to, uh, we tend to think that salvation is when we encounter the Lord Jesus for the first time as Savior, when we get saved, but there is this concept in the Bible, this concept of the already and the not yet. You see, salvation has multi-parts to it. You know, in the past, 
We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been justified. It was certainly grace that declared us not guilty. Present, we are being saved from the power of sin. We call this sanctification. We are being sanctified, being set apart. We need this grace too in this day-to-day reality. And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. We will be glorified. We'll talk about this in a moment, but guess what? We absolutely need His grace then as well. In just a few verses later, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This process of being set apart, being made holy, as Hebrews tells us, talking about the perfect sacrifice Jesus offered, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is great truth that sheds some light on this dual aspect of salvation. We have been made perfect through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, and we are also in the process of being made holy. So believers living on earth is on this transition period that as we wait, as we are being sanctified, we are given the grace we need. There's comfort in knowing that God sustains us. Look at verse 8. Now that we live under grace and not under law, we are free not to let sin reign, but we can live unto righteousness for God, Romans 6 tells us. He provides the power by His Spirit dwelling in us to enable us to live for Him. And so doing, making us more and more like Christ. That is His grace. We do not do this on our own strength, nor can we muster the ability to obey apart from His grace. I might feel that I have to perform, you know, having been saved. I feel now that I could carry on by myself. But as I am learning even now in my journey as a Christian, that it is by His grace that enables me to repent to turn away from my sin and to say no to unrighteousness. It is by His grace that helps me to trust Him. He is my righteousness. I can do it through Him. It is by His grace that helps me to lead my family well. However imperfectly, I do it. It is by His grace that spurs me to serve Him and to serve His people more and more. It is by His grace that causes me to love others. It is His grace that picks me up when I fail, which is almost on a daily basis. Scratch that. On a daily basis, I need His grace. And all of this more and more in increasing measure. He later says in in this letter, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It doesn't turn us into this passive um, passenger that just stands there and does nothing. This grace itself is the power and the motivator to work harder. Yet not I, but true Christ in me, as he says in another letter in Galatians. Every minute, every hour, I have what I need to do what God wants me to do. He says in the other letter in Corinthians, my grace, the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient 
for you. And this is when the Apostle Paul was struggling and frustrated with his affliction. Remember his thorn in the flesh? It's grace that enables us to endure hardships and grace that makes us content in what we have in whatever circumstance we're in. Again, we're never lacking. The moment without that, we begin to think like the world thinks. We end up placing our trust in other things like stock market, our job security, our own ability, our own security. Paul, in his other letter yet again in Philippians, he gives thanks to them. He gives thanks to God for them. And he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Or in other words, you all have fellowship with me in grace. As we grow, we increase in the knowledge of him. We bear fruit. Those are evidences that the testimony of Christ is indeed confirmed in us. Persevering to the end is his grace too. Inevitably, in our Christian journey, we will go through very difficult and trying times. The good shepherd leads us to green pastures, but sometimes we go through dark valleys as well. We can rely on his grace, knowing that he is always with us, which provides us much comfort. He will lead us home. Psalm 23, which is our verse this morning, Verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His grace follows us to the end, and our final destination is to be with our Lord in glory. And that's my third point, the grace that leads us to meet the Lord. That's future grace. You probably figured out the trajectory, right? Past, present, future. Our salvation will be fully realized in the future glory. Again, part of this, part of our salvation package is that God's work in us will be brought to completion in our glorification. We will be presented guiltless on the day. Look at the end of verse 8. This day that we talk about, that Paul talks about, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, is distinguished from the day of the Lord, which is different, um, which is judgment day for all the ungodly, for all of those who reject the Lord Jesus. But this day of our Lord, slightly nuanced, for us we will meet the Lord face to face. Jesus Christ will be fully revealed and at that time we will be ready to be presented as blameless, as Paul writes to another church in Colossae. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there's this sense of remaining steadfast until the end. And again, by his grace, we can do it. And at the end, we will be presented blameless. Once we were hostile in mind, doing evil, totally depraved. We are guilty of sin. But because of his work, we can be guiltless 
on that day. Praise God for the grace that we will receive then. We can have this sure hope, as Peter tells us in his letter. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we will brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. This grace that awaits us in that day. In glory, we will have perfect fellowship with our Lord. We have it now. But imagine then without the presence of sin. And as we read these verses, it's important to understand that Paul hasn't mentioned anything the Corinthians did themselves. Instead, it's all about what God has done for them as free gift because of their faith in Christ. The rest of Paul's letter, he talks about how these believers, you know, they'll have serious spiritual problems. We will read about the divisions in the church, the worldly behavior, the jealousy, the quarreling, the arrogance, tolerating sexual immorality, legal disputes, idolatry, disorderly conduct during the Lord's Supper, denying the resurrection, and more. They are engaging in sinful attitudes and actions. But despite that, despite all of that, Paul is telling them and all of those who are in Christ that God will keep giving them His good gifts. He won't stop sustaining them. He won't stop helping them. And He won't stop keeping them together. They will remain without guilt or blame in His eyes all the way until the return of Christ on the day of our Lord. The very same thing that was said to the church in Corinth is the very same thing being said to the church in Passage West. And how can we be sure that God is doing all of this? Look at verse 9. He is faithful by virtue of the fact that He is committed to shower us with His grace afforded to us by Jesus. They were called into the fellowship of the Son. This is what God intends for them and for all of us um, to have this fellowship. And how often do we value fellowship today? We, by definition, through Jesus, are in a relationship with one another. We were made to be in fellowship with Him. When you think about it, their salvation and ours didn't just begin on the point of conversion. In fact, it predates that day when we placed our faith in Jesus. It goes all the way back before the foundation of the world. And that, to me, is a mind-boggling thing. God has and is really doing it all. Ephesians tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. When you're feeling a bit down and weary, I encourage you to read Ephesians. Declare to yourself the richness you have in Christ. They were called, just as we who are in Christ, are called into the fellowship of His Son. There's this um, general call, right? We read that in, in verse 9. They were called into fellowship. But there's this general call that goes out into all of the, wor of the world indiscriminately. And that just reflects the heart of God, doesn't it? His love, and He offers that to all. The call to repent and to believe, for God so loved the world. That is the call to everybody. 
Um, this is the call that everyone is invited to and the very message we are to proclaim. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus that saves. But today many refuse this message. Many reject the Lord Jesus. But there is this other call, which the theologians would say effectual call, where when God calls you, you can only but respond. God is not so weak that a person can refuse this call. This is the summons of the Almighty God. One might say it's irresistible. Irresistible grace. This is truly an amazing truth because what this means is that God truly carries all of this from end to end, from before the foundations of the world to eternal glory in the new heavens and the new earth. This is His grace to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who put their faith in Him. Um, I wanted to bring an object lesson, but I, I didn't have it. I didn't have enough time. I wanted to bring a hamper, right? And uh, maybe it's a bit too early for that. Whoever called Christmas early, it's not me, right? But I wanted to bring a hamper. You know what a hamper is. Um, you know what goes into the hamper. You know, I imagine usually tin goods or jars of jam or maybe bread, tea or coffee, wine if you're fancy. But all sorts, right? All sorts but one hamper. Well, our salvation package that I've been talking about, I've been referring to, is like this God's hamper to us. It's got different bits uh, and includes, right, in no particular order, right? Get ready for the big words. <clears throat> our adoption, our election, our justification, our regeneration, our sanctification, our repentance, our conversion, our faith, our perseverance, our glorification. I'm sure I missed some, but there's more. All of these beautifully wrapped in grace. Can you imagine that? God's hamper. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. We are given it by virtue of God's goodness, His love, and His mercy and grace. And all of this for His glory. We are the sole beneficiaries of His goodness, the targets of His love, the objects of not wrath, but His mercy and grace. All of this because Jesus has paid it all. On the cross, He took all that is ours, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our death, and He gave to us all that is His, His righteousness, His life, his inheritance, we get to share in His glory. We sing this song by a band called Sovereign Grace. Grace, grace, grace paid for my sin and brought me to life. Grace, grace, grace clothes me in power to do what is right. And grace, grace, grace leads us to heaven where we'll see His face. And because of that, we'll never, ever cease to thank Him for that grace. The Corinthians, and I'll finish with this, the Corinthians who, were, who we read here in this letter to be a messy bunch, we're called to be in fellowship with God Himself. We, who are a messy bunch, are also called to the very same fellowship. Let's be encouraged and bask in glory, in God's glory, for He has been so, so 
gracious to us? How can we respond but to simply give thanks? Does this not give you hope for the future? Does this not help your day-to-day life? Even in your struggles and your hardships, there is grace. Let's never forget to give glory to God for all that He has done, and He has done it all. The totality of our salvation is a gift of grace from God. Sola gratia. Let's pray. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we come to your throne of grace, and what a lovely throne it is that we can approach you in full confidence because of what your Son Jesus has done. He has made it so. He has given us the right to be children of God. That is an amazing grace. Help us, Lord, to never forget you are with us. Sometimes we forget that we only need grace when we are justified. No, we need your grace every single day as we wait for you, as we wait for your coming back. And Lord, in that glory, how we look forward to be not in the presence of sin. I can't even imagine what it would be like, but thank you, Lord, for that grace too. And Lord, as we think of the Lord's table, of our Savior, we give him thanks for it is his love and his mercy and grace that we uh, get to benefit, Lord. Help us to be a thankful people. Help us to be a grateful people. And that May that spill out to others that they can see and we have a testimony that we can share. And so, Lord, I I declare and preach your word now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.